The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right, well, um, why don't we get into God's Word? If you want to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, uh, we're going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. And uh, this passage uh, that we're looking at um, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, we've been studying this book of Titus. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a pastor in the island of Crete called, uh, a pastor named Titus. And what Titus, and what we looked at last week was, and the last couple of weeks really, is that uh, Paul's instructing Titus as as a pastor how to lead this church, and he is really talking about in chapter two was really about uh, internal relationships within the family of God, how they uh, relate to one another, how the various responsibilities that we have uh, to the body of Christ, the various um, things that we are called to do, and he gets really specific, speaking to older men, older women younger men, younger women, and then he, he lays out the gospel for them. This week, the attention, this chapter, chapter 3, the attention starts to kind of bend outwards, and he, he starts talking about our proper conduct within relationships with those who are outside of the body of Christ, those who are not believers. The island of Crete was a, a place that was known for debauchery and ungodliness and deception. And they were, uh, if you read in, in chapter 1, uh, the, Paul says that Cretans are um, lazy gluttons and evil beasts. It's, uh, and that wasn't him, that wasn't just his assessment. That was just a well-known thing. That um, There was actually this, uh, this word that meant liar in the Greek language, and this word was kretizo, which comes from the word Crete. It was this way of kind of saying, if you're from Crete, you can't be trusted. And this is where these churches were, these house churches were. And so as Titus considers the, the, as Paul considers as well, uh, the, the ministry to these people, how they share the gospel with people, how they bring the gospel to bear upon their lives. This is the, the focus that Paul has now. And, and the question really seems to be, what kind of relationships should we have? Like, how should we be conducting ourselves in our personal relationships? And this is an important question for us. Our world is broken. Our, our world is in need of a savior. The things that are, that, are, that are normal and that are broadcasted and encouraged are destructive. They are damaging to people's lives. They're rather clueless. If I could have a crack at paraphrasing this passage this morning, it'd be something like this. Don't be a jerk. Jesus wasn't a jerk to you, so don't be a jerk. That's kind of what this passage is saying. It's kind of what Paul is saying. One of the, one of the most important aspects of uh, our evangelism, the way we share the gospel with people uh, around us, the way that we uh, demonstrate our, our love for those around us, um, that will be severely impaired if we are rude, if we are conceited, if we are self-centered, if, if all we can do is talk about ourselves, if we, if, if we can only think about ourselves, if, if we're that kind of people, a witness to the good news of the gospel is going to be impaired as a result of that. It's going to, be, it's going to significantly impact our witness of the gospel. And what Paul's going to do here is he's going to give us this, these instructions. He's going to point out this, this conduct, and then he's going to lay out the reason why 
And that's because of the gospel. This is the way that Jesus was to us. So let me read it to you, and then we'll get into it. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Titus says, sorry, Paul says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we, we bless you and we praise you for your word. We ask, Lord, that as we spend this time in your word and hearing what you have to say to us, Lord Jesus, that you would instruct us and lead us. Lord, Lord like last week, that, that passage that we are, uh, we are encouraged and we are rebuked, Lord, by your word. We ask that you would do that this morning. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, Father. And, and God, would you, would you reveal to us again your glory in the face of Jesus? Would we see in Jesus all the reasons why following you and, and worshiping you and, and glorifying you is absolutely worth it? So we thank you and, and praise you for this, Lord. Amen. When we read a line that says, submit to rulers and authorities, it can make us a little bit nervous, can't it? Like, it can make us a little bit nervous about what this actually means. And especially in, in recent events over the last few years, that can make us just a little bit like, we're not too sure how we feel about rulers and authorities. And we're all friends here, right, though. We love God's Word, and so we want to hear what this actually says. And, and, and one of the things about rulers and authorities is that they are virtually everywhere. Now, now Paul seems to have really in mind those with civic authority, people in, in roles of government, in, in council, and that kind of thing. Uh, that seems to be what he mostly has in mind here. But there are other people who have other roles of responsibility, who, who have rule, who have authority over various things. And, and that might be police officers or bus drivers or the owners of restaurants or um, school principals or bosses or, or anybody like that. These are people who, they, they hold authority in their various places. They're kind of like gatekeepers. They are the ones who, who let people in and out of those spaces. They're the ones who are in charge. And when we think about those who are outside of the church, those who, who don't believe in Jesus, who don't love Jesus, who we are called to evangelize, we need to consider those gatekeepers, those people who have rule and authority, because how we treat them will impact the way that we do what God has called us to do. 
When I was a, a chaplain at um, a high school in Brisbane, it was Kelvin Grove State College, inner city school, large school, uh, a very um, in, uh, affluent school because of its position and proximity to the city, very strategic kind of school. Um, and about 10 years before I became a chaplain there, the, the chaplaincy service had actually been kicked out of the school. Uh, a visiting um, ministry had come to the school and just done the wrong thing and it was an uproar and the chaplaincy service was asked to not come back. And it was up to uh, a group of pastors who really just kind of put their heads together and went, we need, to, we need to work out how we can start serving this school again with this chaplaincy service. And so the, the strategy really was to, to get alongside the principals and see how these churches can support and, and, uh, and just encourage these principals and, and, and one in particular, the high school principal in particular, and as a result of years of work by some very wise people, the, the chaplaincy service was allowed to come back in. But it was this thing that kind of, as the, as the chaplain at that particular time in that school, it was this thing that pretty kind of flavored the chaplaincy service that we've got to be so careful about the way that we operate here because it's, it's not just a, a given that we can work in that school. These are people who we had to, we had to work with the people who had rule and authority. They were the gatekeepers. When Paul talks about submitting to rulers and authorities and obeying them, he's using really clear language there about how we must not resist those in power or uh, make life difficult for those in power, particularly for those who hold seats of government and council, but rather to, to instead utilize our gifts and talents and resources that we've been able to have to be able to serve them and, and, and show them that we are, we're ready to contribute. We, we want to be a part of this. We're not against this. We want to help help out this is what is meant by being ready for every good work it's to be a good citizen not making it difficult for those who lead we've got to remember that for those people who've been placed into positions of power whether that's politicians or kings or whatever they've been placed there by God Paul says the same kind of thing in Romans 13 with the same set of words God has put them there they are accountable to him. He's put them there for the sake of enacting justice. And we've got to be careful about rejecting their authority because we might find ourselves rejecting God. Paul is instructing here believers to be submissive, to be obedient, and to be willing and ready to do every kind of good work. And I think what Paul is getting at here is that this is because of this, for the sake of the spread of the gospel. If you look at 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, Paul talks there about praying for kings, praying for rulers, praying for those in authority. And he says two verses later that God desires us to, to live this way so that we can, leave, we can lead a, 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 a godly life because God desires all to be saved. Pray for kings, pray for these people in authority because God desires all all to be saved. He desires the, the gospel to go out and for people to come to a place of faith in him. Those who have positions of power, they are often the ones who grant access to sharing the gospel. They can, they can either make or break the mission. And so it's for the benefit of God's mission that we are good and exemplary citizens. Inasmuch as we're able to maintain godliness and not edit the gospel, we should work with rulers and authorities and not against them. One of the most uh, effective programs we ran when I was a chaplain was this program called Chairboys. 
And what it was is that the school had this really significant need where um, they had a huge hall and it had a whole lot of chairs kind of like these ones. And they would, have to set, they would have to set it up sometimes for assembly. And there'd be 12 to 1,500 chairs that needed to be set up. And then the next day, they needed it for a school dance. And so all the chairs had to go. And then, then the next day, they needed it for a science fair. So a different setup. And, and they were just, the groundskeepers were busting their backs, trying to keep up with the demand of this school. And so um, together with the principal, we devised this program where we would we'd collect, uh, we grabbed a group of year 10 boys, 15 to 20 year 10 boys, and they were the chair boys. And it was up to them to move the chairs. And it was me as a chaplain. I was in charge of that. And so whenever they needed the hall to be set up or packed down or whatever it was, that person would get in contact with me. I'd put a notice in the notices, say, hey, chair boys, we're on period three today. Make sure you're at the hall. And it worked an absolute treat. The groundskeepers were stoked. They didn't have to set up the chairs anymore. The, the school administration, was they were so grateful because they didn't have to pay as much workers' comp anymore. Um, we, uh, the, the students that we, that we selected, these are the year 10 boys who were just the absolute characters, the absolute kind of, they just made life difficult and they, um, they were just the kind of guys who the teachers really didn't like having them in their class and so the teachers were really happy because those boys weren't in class. Um, the parents were happy because it actually reduced... Uh, truancy, the boys stopped wagging when chair boys was on and sometimes they would get calls from their friends when they're in the city they like, come back to school because chair boys so they'd actually come back to school um, the boys were happy because they got a coke at the end of it, <laughs> it was the cheapest coke, it was, it was so good the, but the, the tricky thing was is that to the chaplaincy committee who I was working for basically, the question was why are you moving furniture? we're not paying you to move furniture we we're praying you to do this other thing. And it, and it was a legitimate question. It was an important question. The, the question, though, was answered by the fact that actually it gave me the opportunity two or three times a week, me and 15 year 10 boys, and we'd move chairs and we'd, they'd try and out-muscle me and we'd sit around and have a Coke afterwards. And I got to invite them to youth group. I got to invite them to the youth camp. Some of them got saved. I'm still in contact with some of them. Now, now that is kind of going to the, to the, what does the school need? What, what's, actually, what, what's actually, what's a need here? Rather than kind of going, well, this is my agenda, this is my thing, this is what I want to do, I want to come and preach the gospel, I want to run these ch- chaplaincy programs, all this kind of stuff. It was more so, hey, what does the school need? And then it opened up so many other doors to go and share the gospel and do other things. It's not about manipulating to get our own way. It, it's rather understanding how people work. And Paul talks about being ready to do every good work. It's, it's a willingness to show that we're keen to help, keen to be ready to do good, willing and available to not, do, not, and not be inconvenienced to help others out. And we'll see doors opened. Don't just be on about your own agenda. Don't just be on about your own convenience, the only, what, what you've got in mind. Seek to serve the agenda of those in power. Be a good citizen. Contribute to the overall culture in a positive and healthy way. Serve those in power, and you'll see doors open. Now, someone might say in response to this, okay, cool, but what if I don't trust the government? What if the government hurts me or abuses its power? And that's a, that's a great question. That's, that's something that we've got to think about. And it's part of the reason why we like to pray for the persecuted church once a month. And we've got a lot to learn. What happens when we 
when we get in trouble for what we think is being obedient to the gospel. And we've got to look to Jesus who said to us, if they, if they hate us, they hated him first. If, they, if, if, if the world hates us, the world hated him first. Jesus was hurt. Jesus was abused. He was denied and betrayed and struck and beaten and wrongly accused and even tortured. And he did it all for our sake, for the sake of giving us eternal life. Jesus is no stranger to receiving abuse from those who are meant to protect him. And so when we are told in God's word to submit to rules and authorities, we've got to be very careful that why we might be tempted to ignore this. Now, someone else might say, but, okay, but what about the exceptions that we find in Scripture? And there are exceptions in Scripture. There are times in Scripture where God's people don't submit to authority. God's people say, no, we're not going to do that. Think of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. They were commanded by Pharaoh to, as a means of controlling the population to kill the baby boys as they were born. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. Think of Daniel, who was in, in Babylon. And the instruction was, don't pray except to the king. Daniel disobeyed. He opened the, door, opened the windows up so they could see him praying. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bowed down to this image. And they, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We can think of Acts 5, where Peter and the other apostles famously said to those who were in charge who were trying to silence the gospel, they said, no, we must obey God rather than people. So yes, there are biblical exceptions that give us a clear template for where submission to those who rule and have authority should come to an end. This seems to be when, A, those who rule seek to compel us to do something that is ungodly, and B, when we are pressured to edit or even deny the message of the gospel. If that takes place, then, then yes, I think we need to say at that stage, no, we, we must obey God rather than people. But let's just express, can I just express some caution there, that we've got to be wise about this. Like if we read a command like this and, and go immediately rushing to all the exemptions to get us off the hook, that's, that's a pretty lousy hermeneutic. Let's check our hearts and our motivations. Friends, we as a church, we're not wedded to the state. We're not wedded to the state. We don't, uh, we don't consider that to be true. And there likely will come times in the future, and I would say it's just in a matter of time, when we will have to say to the government, no, we're not going to treat people that way. We're not going to do that. That goes against what God's law has asked us to do. There might be times we will have to say no to the government to be wise and pick our battles as a church. Let's remember the mission that God has given us to proclaim the gospel to a hurting world. In verse 2 then, the, the focus shifts from that upward relationship to those in authority to lateral relationships. This is where, I said before, where I think Paul's saying, don't be a jerk. Paul says in verse 2, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now, this, this word slandering is uh, literally to, to speak evil about somebody else, to, to speak ill of them, whether that's um, to their face or behind their backs or even behind our steering wheels in the silent, cone of silence called our cars that we think that nobody can hear us. It's when we are experts 
on everybody else's faults, experts on the faults of others. It's when we, we you know, we, we might hear somebody talking somebody else up and we don't like that person, so we just, we just keep that in check. Oh, you're totally right, they are such a lovely person, except for all the times that. Or, or we subtly, you know, ask for prayer for our friend who's going through this thing and we'll just drop you their name or whatever it is. Or, or it's, it might just be in some kind of attempt when we hear the prayers of somebody that we also just kind of throw in something good about ourselves as well. And, and can I just ask this question, is anybody innocent here of this? I, I know I'm not. I know, I know as recently as last night, talking with some friends, felt the temptation just to kind of, just to do a bit of a sideways, sideways you know, a bit of a slide tackle on, on someone's reputation for no reason, just my own sinful heart. Furthermore, he, he says, avoid fighting. And this is um, not, not just physical fights, this is a, a kind of quarreling, like arguments that you have with other people over, over things that just don't seem to matter, that you're just kind of always geared up, ready to, ready to have a fight, ready to, to debate somebody about some kind of small kind of thing. You, you're just looking for it. I, um, I think social media is one of those places. If you look at the, the comments on things, like I, I've stopped posting things on Facebook now just because I just got into trouble a few times posting what I thought were rather innocuous things and just you know, comments after comments of people just having huge arguments over, like, just calm down. I, I saw somebody post something a few days ago. He was promoting a book saying, hey, you should read this book. It's really great. And it had something to do with about, like, why Christians should go to church. That was the title. And, and then I saw Facebook again yesterday, and it was, like, 238 comments later. Long, just absolute... And, and, and totally legitimate, like, pe- like these are people who are hurting, people who are frustrated at certain things and they have a history and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not denying that, but just, it's just this fight, this, this quarreling. It's over things that are unprofitable and worthless. Paul says the same thing at the end of this chapter. He still tells Titus, avoid foolish debates and disputes about things that are unprofitable and worthless. It's these little, little things. He's saying, avoid getting caught up in debates about small and insignificant things. And Paul's not mucking around here. See, he's not just saying, hey, that's a bad idea. He's actually getting right to the heart of our our sinful condition. See, the heart of the problem is our sin that draws us like gravity to trying to be the center of the universe. Sin is angling to be on the throne, to try and get God off the throne and say, no, I should be the one that's in charge. I should be the Messiah. I should be the king. I should be the ruler. I should be in charge. I should be Lord. I should be the ruler of my own heart and life. And the problem that causes with, uh, with, with personal relationships is that we are so unqualified to be at the center of the universe that the tiniest thing can, can, cause, can be the biggest threat to us. A single match, a single flame can ignite an entire forest fire and cause untold destruction. And and when you think that you're at the center of the universe and you should be there, you're risking a forest fire. When all we can think about is ourselves, when we think that we're right and that our agenda is best, we become puffed up. We we become absolutely sure that everybody else would agree with us on on this as well. And all it takes is for somebody just to disagree with us about something, and suddenly, I'm ready for a fight. 
suddenly I'm ready to, I'm ready to go toe-to-toe on you on this. And, and this gets really prickly when you, you start calling, like somebody has a different opinion to you about something, a theological thing, anything. And, and you start going, I don't even know if they're saved. It's not a primary issue. It's not even a secondary tertiary issue. It's just a thing. And you're like, I don't even know if that, how can you honestly say that you love Jesus if you're going to take that, that part? And so against slander, against fighting, Paul says to be kind and to always show gentleness. Now, in those two words, kind and always showing gentleness, Paul is using an incredible economy of words there. These words here, they are utterly powerful and utterly beautiful. And they completely disallow any kind of notion that we should only do this sparingly or occasionally or whenever we feel like it. It's true gentleness to everyone to the nth degree. Paul says, be kind, show gentleness. Now, now some people don't like this idea. They kind of look down on kindness and gentleness seen in them. That's like kind of like that's really kind of pithy, kind of like lean, you know, soft. It's, it's not that important. I used to be like that. I used to think that I, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, she was running a, a youth camp, and she chose as the theme for the youth camp, be kind. And I was like, what a waste of time. What a waste of a theme. Like, come on, seriously. Like, you should be getting into the meaty stuff of the gospel and, and you know, the theology, and like, you should be like, teaching about roughness and blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm swallowing my words now because these words, kindness and, and gentleness, these are powerful words. These are potent words, kindness and gentleness. Kindness and gentleness, there's immense power in them. They, these words, they have very similar meanings, but they flow in different directions. Kindness here means not insisting that everybody else has to obey every letter of every law and custom. That's why that word, there's a special word that he uses there. They're not holding others. A person who is kind isn't holding others to the tight requirements of etiquette and social norms. They're not looking down on someone because they're underdressed or because they use the wrong words or they're not wearing the right labels or uh, because their lives are messy. They're not kind of saying, like, they're not, they're not holding others to, this, to the, their own list of rules. And then gentleness is similar, but instead of flowing outwards for the way that you regard others, it flows inwards, referring to someone who isn't overly impressed by their own sense of self-importance. They're self-deprecating, and they're not insisting on special treatment because of anything in and of themselves. Put together, these are people who, they never turn their nose up at others, and they never look down on others. They don't think too highly of themselves, and they don't think too highly of the rules that they set for others. You'll never hear them say, don't you know the rules? And you'll never hear them say, don't you know who I am? Instead, they're hopping down there from their throne to serve others. And Paul is commanding these traits in God's people to the nth degree, towards all people at all times. And the reason why this is so important for evangelism is that when you are being kind and gentle, you are being just like Jesus. Jesus didn't look down on us. He came down and he dwelt amongst us. Jesus knew that no one could perfectly or even remotely obey God's law. And so he came and he obeyed it on our behalf. Jesus was gentle and Jesus was kind. 
In fact, in the only time in the Gospels where Jesus opens up his heart and says, this is who I truly am. This is what's actually inside my heart. It's in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He uses this word gentle. It means meek. It might, have, it might be meek and, meek and lowly is the translation you're used to. See, meek, <clears throat> meekness is not weakness at all. Meekness is restrained strength. Meekness is a ferocious fighter who doesn't feel the need to, to bust heads to prove himself. Meekness is a, is a totally capable, fierce warrior who has a, has a sword in, in its sheath. Not, not willing to strike, but rather to serve, using his strength to serve. Meekness is not a, a weak thing. It's not a weak trait. It's actually strength utilized to serve others. Here's the thing. Anyone can fight and quarrel. My kids were experts in fighting and quarrel be, quarreling before they could walk. It's, it's not a hard thing to do. You don't have to be an expert linguist to know how to tear someone down with your words. You just need a few simple words, and you can tear down someone's reputation. What we are called to as God's people is far richer and far better than that. We're called not to be contentious people who are experts in the faults of others, but to be kind people who use their strength to serve. And if we were to ask why, Paul answers this in the next verse. He says in verse 3, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Now, we could go through each of those words looking at exactly what they mean, but I actually think they're pretty self-explanatory. We don't need much more of an explanation than what we just have there. And they all operate within the same realm, and I think that's the point. You see, these aren't so much actions that we do, but they're more so postures of the heart, that this is who we once were. The kind of person who Paul is describing here is the someone who is so self-centered, so self-justifying, so self-aggrandizing, and so self-loathing that they become toxic and harmful to others. Like if you just look at the progression of that sentence, he says, we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by various passions and pleasures. And we might look at that and go, oh yeah, but that's, if, if I'm, if I've got stuff going on in my heart, that, that's fine. Like, that's not hurting anybody. And, and certainly our world thinks that. Like, whatever we've got going on in our heart, we can just do whatever we want. But then it goes from very kind of pirate, uh, private personal destruction to very public dis- dis- destruction. He says, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Can, can you see how sin just completely destroys personal relationships? If you're at the center of the universe and you don't want to move on, the the trajectory that you're on is is one of loneliness, of increased isolation, where you are frustrated with those around you. And it gets to the point that the only people that can stand to to be around you are those who are too afraid to open their mouths to tell you exactly how you make them feel. And Paul's saying, don't look down on them know that once upon a time you were on that same trajectory. Once upon a time you were like that. See, 
we, our world needs to be saved. Our world needs the gospel. I was watching a, a program just the other day, and it was like a talk show, and I won't go into the details, but it was, they were basically just, it was these people sitting around talking about a particular thing, that they, a particular profession, and, and it, was, it's a, it's a, it was a sinful thing, what they were doing, and they, they, were, they were gobsmacked that destruction and, and damage was following them wherever they went, like how just they, were just, they were flabbergasted that it just destroyed the personal relationships around them, and how, how it was everybody else's fault. Deceived. Enslaved. See, things, if you're a Christian, there was once upon a, there was once a time that you were like this. You, you didn't see any need for Jesus to be your king. You were in charge. You thought, I can kind of, I could do this. That's the trajectory of our hearts. You, you might not agree with that. You might go, no, I'm, I was actually fine. And then Jesus came along and thought, that's pretty good. You know, I'm, that's not actually the case at all. Before you knew Christ, your heart was on the, on the trajectory of, of, and was completely in utter rebellion against God. But when the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to our own sin and how terrible we were when we were in charge and how we need to be reconciled to Jesus, he, he pointed us towards our salvation in Jesus. And although our salvation doesn't automatically eradicate those things in our hearts, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit is eliminating them. He is growing us along this. This is exactly who we were. But then as Paul says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We looked at that word appeared last week, that the grace of God has appeared, that that was the arrival of Jesus. And he says now, the loving kindness of God has appeared. And he's talking not just about the coming of Jesus, but the, the appearing of Jesus as good news for our hearts. When Jesus appeared to us as good, Jesus became good news to us at some stage, good news to our hearts. He's saying that you used to be on this trajectory of destruction, dead in your sins, but then Jesus appeared and saved you from your sins. That Jesus appeared to us as good news, and we looked at him and we said, I need him. I need him to be saved. Jesus saves us from being on the throne of our own hearts and taking the throne of our own hearts. Jesus had every reason to look down on us. He had every reason to have tabs on himself because of his holiness, but he did neither. In his love for mankind and in his goodness, God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he saved us. And look at what verse 5 emphasizes. It's not because of works righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. The gospel is the ultimate leveler of all people. There's nobody here who is a Christian who we can kind of say, it makes sense. It makes sense that they became a Christian because they were kind of almost there already. So, of course. Like, if you've ever thought, oh, that person would make a great Christian, you're wrong. Because we don't. None of us would make great Christians. It was the grace of God that saved us. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save humanity from their sins and to reconcile them to Himself, being His people under their King. As Christians, we've got 
nothing in and of ourselves to boast about. We aren't saved because we were good enough. We aren't saved because of our personality. We aren't saved because we were clever enough to choose us. Sorry, we weren't clever enough to choose Jesus. He saved us. His love for mankind, his undeserved love and kindness towards us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in his mercy. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit washes that sin from us and regenerates us and renews us. It's an entirely new life. It's a complete renovation of our entire selves. You see, when we put our trust in Jesus, he is not just some add-on. He's not an upgrade to our lives. He's Lord, and we are being renewed after his image. Paul calls Jesus in the previous chapter, he called Jesus the great God of the universe. Jesus is the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand and the entire universe and everything in it from the tiniest quark to the largest galaxy. These things are not only created in him, for him and by him and they not only fit into the palm of his hand and he holds them all together, but all of these things continue to only exist and continue to function as a result of his ongoing providence to sustain them. God is causing right now the planets to spin on their axes. Right now he's doing that. None of us are doing that. None of us are doing that. He's right now continuing to make blood pump around your heart, pump around your body. None of us are doing that. He's continuing right now to ensure that the tiniest ant in the grass outside knows what it must do today. I went snorkeling a couple of days ago and I saw a stingray and I'm going to just go out there on a limb and just totally, you know, um, speculate. But maybe I was the only person in history to ever see that stingray and maybe no one else will ever see that stingray. Maybe, maybe not. I've got no idea. But that stingray is operating and continuing to exist to the glory of God regardless of whether I saw it or not and regardless of any, if anybody else sees it or not. And that's just a stingray, just a tiny little stingray swimming around. And God is continuing to sustain. Jesus is continuing to to sustain the world by the word of his power. He causes all things to continue. to Every single cell, Jesus is Lord and King over all things. We cannot treat him like an assistant for him to serve our agenda. We cannot treat him as an add-on. We cannot treat him as a, oh, well, I've got these really great plans for my life, Jesus, so if you can just get on board with this, this will be really, really great. And as long as, you know, you're doing this then, and you're, as long as you're on board with what I've got planned, Jesus, then I will worship you and I will serve you. He is our Lord or he is nothing. And by putting our faith in him, he becomes our king and we become a new creation. We become entirely new. Born again, as Jesus puts it in John 3. We become his children, his subjects, and we obey him gladly, being eager to do good works for him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who washes us by regenerating and renewing us. And then Paul says this in in verse 6 and 7, Paul lays this out so that we can fully understand it. He says, He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And and this might just be one of the most wonderful verses in the whole Bible. He, 
that's God the Father, poured out His Spirit, that's God the Holy Spirit, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, that's God the Son, our Savior. God the Father poured out God the Spirit on us abundantly through God the Son. Our salvation is a work of the Trinitarian God. Some people make the mistake of thinking that God the Father is like the Old Testament version of God and God the Son is the New Testament version of God, that God the Father was this you know, cranky old guy and, and his heyday was back in the Old Testament. People loved him and that was cool for him back then, but then there was a change of management um, and then the next God came in, God the Son came in and he kind of got everybody, he kind of got everybody off the hook and that was really great. And then God the Spirit is like kind of the, the weird uncle who shows up to some family events and makes everybody feel a little bit awkward. Like, no, that's not it at all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are the triune God, three persons in, in the one essence. The Trinitarian God is three persons who we should not confuse with one another in one divine essence which we should never divide. That God, who is worthy of our worship, conceives of our salvation before time began. God the Father sent God the Son to live the life that we could not live and die the death in our place and he rose again to new life, to give us new life and and he sent God the Spirit to apply the work of salvation to our hearts because we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we could not choose God because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. If you are saved, it is because of the work of the Trinitarian God. Not just one of them on their own, but together in unity. If you are saved, it is because, it is because the, the Holy Trinity, the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, saved you. That's why we are saved. Not by our works. Not by anything that we have done. And Paul says that God did this. So that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Justification is righting a wrong. It's making amends. One of my favorite explanations of uh, justification and and righteousness, uh, because they're the same word in Greek. Um, One of my favorite explanations of this comes from Tim Keller, and he says that that feeling of righteousness is like when you show up to an event or show up to a wedding or some kind of thing, and you realize you're suddenly completely underdressed. Like you thought it was smart, casual, and it was actually a formal thing, and you're like, oh my goodness, I am not right here. And, and you're not just kind of self-conscious about how you feel, but you're, you're conscious about how everybody else feels. And, and that feeling that we, that, of, that, that's the kind of feeling that we have before God, that we actually, we're not worthy, we're not righteous. And Paul says, uh, no one is righteous. No one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. In our pre-conversion, we are unrighteous and we need to be justified. We need to be made right lest we experience the wrath of God over our sin. And what does Paul say? He says that we have been justified by what? His grace. God has justified us, not because he saw some potential in us, but by his grace. Total unmerited favor that had nothing to do with our good works and despite our awful track record. By his grace, God justifies us. He makes us right with him because Jesus died in our place and imputed his righteousness to us as a free gift of grace so that 
in the great courtroom of eternity, God looks at us. If you're a Christian, God looks at you and says, not guilty. That's wonderful, right? Like the forgiveness of our sins, we have been made righteous, we've been justified by God's grace. We've got nothing to prove to God. We don't have to, to try and make ourselves a better version of ourselves before we can open our mouth in prayer or open God's word to, to get to know him. We can just come to him by the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing full well that he has paid for our redemption. He has saved us from our sins. He is the one who has made us righteous. We have every right to, to come now into the presence of God as children, as heirs. Paul says, heirs with a hope of eternal life. An heir is a child who, is re- who receives the inheritance. And our, inherit- our inheritance is eternal life with Jesus because of Jesus and for Jesus' glory. Can you see why the command to submit and to obey and, and to do good and to be kind and gentle is not only entirely appropriate for believers, but those be- behaviors are the only logical outcome of someone who has been saved by grace. Can you see that a life and a heart that has been utterly changed and beautifully changed from being one of malice and hatred into one of kindness and gentleness by the grace of Jesus Christ, that's just one of, that's just one of the most incredible platform to proclaim the gospel. That God is doing a work in us to change us and mold us and become more and more like Jesus, gentle like Jesus, kind like Jesus, down from our high horse like Jesus, not looking down on others like Jesus. Not, not, not being the center of, of the universe, being willing to use whatever God's put in our hands to serve others. Why? So that all people would come to know God for the sake of mission, for the sake of evangelism. So let me leave you with this question. Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus? Who in your mind right now, like when if I ask you that question, who do you feel like you need to share the gospel with and you're just not really sure what to do next or how to go? Who comes to your mind? Or, or maybe I can put it like this way. Uh, like what, what has God called you to do? And, and what has God called you to do that if you didn't do it, you would feel like you'd been disobedient to God? Like, what, what, what area of ministry is God calling you to, to do in your life? For some of you, I, you've told me, you feel like there's some kind of, some kind of ministry in, in your life, in your future, where it's like overseas, it's missions, it's some kind of ministry like that, some kind of vocational thing, perhaps. You feel like God's just pulling you towards that. And, and if you didn't do that, you'd feel like you'd get to the end of your life and you'd be disobedient to God. For others, if you, God is not calling you overseas or to, to give up your jobs, God's calling you to go back into your day job, back into your street, back into your university, back into that classroom, back into that school to be like Jesus. That's your ministry. That's the people that God has called you to. The, the people that God brings, apart, uh, brings along your path. And that's a good thing we can ask God right now. God, who are you calling me to? Who are you... Who are you what, what are you calling me to in this life? Here's the thing. I want you to be released into the work of ministry. I want you to feel like you've got what you need to go and, and, and do the work of ministry. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got God's word. You've got the gospel in your hearts. 
you got the evidence of of a change in life. Like there was once your pre your pre Jesus you, and and then the the like Jesus you that you're becoming. And, and my role as a pastor in this church, it's not my role, it's not my job to do the work of the ministry, but Paul says in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What, what's God calling to you to? And what do you need from us? What do you need from your church? What, what do you need prayer in? Like maybe you could fill out a connect card today and just say, hey, I'd love prayer as I go into the ministry in my job. And I particularly love prayer on whatever it is. Wednesdays, it's when we have our staff meetings and I just feel like I just need extra prayer. Put that, we would love to pray for you about that. What else do you need? How can we equip you? How can we love you? How can we help you? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.